Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today we start digging into Wittgenstein's Tractatus. Joel introduces us with the direction of the book as a whole, and then discusses the first two propositions, which sound somewhat dull and almost trivial, but they set us up for some very important claims later on in the book. Of course, Wittgenstein ends with something that sounds like a very fancy way of saying, shut up. But what that means, it'll take some time to get to. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Check out, check out tacticalfaith.com for information on our other podcasts, blogs, stuff we're doing, and other kinds of stuff we're in the process of producing. You can also find information about us there as well as ways to support us if you'd like. If you like what we're doing, don't be quiet about it. And if you have requests or questions, email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com. That's wondering with an A. Or tweet us at Toward Wisdom. Enjoy. All right, so today we're going to be talking about, we're actually going to be diving into Wittgenstein's Tractatus, uh, Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, uh, a pretentious title if ever there were one. And Joel is going to be leading us. And the Tractatus, uh, as we mentioned last time, is split into seven propositions. That doesn't mean there are only seven sentences in the book. There are several more sentences, uh, but there are seven propositions. And uh, the book ends with the seventh, but the first six propositions are, you know, the main proposition and then a bunch of sub propositions that range from half a page to, I don't know, 15, 20 pages, something like that, maybe more. Uh, today, Joel is going to talk about the first two propositions, and then I might ask him some questions. Uh, and so with that, Joel, you want to get us started? Sure. Before. Before we get into Proposition 1, I just want to remind everyone where we're going with this. Um, as I mentioned last time, this book, the meaning kind of twists when you get to the end. And so instead of trying to lead you through semi-blindly not knowing where we're going, and then you have the twist, I want to take the time and just remind us where we're going so that when we get to the twist, we see, oh, yeah, that makes complete sense. Um Remember, the, the last proposition of the Tractatus is, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Wittgenstein is trying to, sh to tell us that philosophy has limits on what it can say, and it shouldn't try to say things it can't say. Instead, we should focus on trying to show meaning and learn me the meaning from being able to perceive what's being uh, communicated rather than exclusively relying on language, because language, as we'll see as we go through this, is not a very clear communicator, to say the least. So proposition one, the, what starts the book is, the world is everything that is the case. And you're saying... That sounds obvious. And it kind of is, but it's not exactly. Because when Wittgenstein talks about the world, he's saying this collection of facts is everything that is the case. So anything that you know or that can be stated as a fact, communicated as a fact, is the totality of the world. This means that if there are things that 
possibilities we don't know about or things we don't know how to communicate, they don't fit into the world or things that, that, that cannot be perceived or, or conceived uh, as as a logical fact. Um, and, and when he says logical fact, what he's saying is, is just a very broad sense of um, it's something that we can uh, visualize, we can maybe put into words, but maybe we can we can at least try to communicate or we have some sort of sense that we're, we're trying to communicate when we talk about these logical facts. Um, the logical facts get into the relations of, of things as well, which we'll talk about. But for now, I just want to get that on the table that when he says the world is everything that is the case, it's kind of the obvious, but it's also, he's, he's talking about uh ideas about communicable, potentially communicable things. Um, He's not just saying um, all that stuff out there. He's saying, you know, it has something to do with, with what's going on in our minds and how we, we think about the world and how we see the world. Um, That's proposition one. This sets up for proposition two, and he says, what is the case, the fact, is the existence of atomic facts. And you're like, okay, atomic facts, logical, f- what's going on with this? Well, an atomic fact is a combination of objects. Now, objects are, th- there's no complicated definition on objects, they're just things. And, but then he wants to be clear that a thing is a constituent part of an atomic fact. The thing itself is not the atomic fact, but it's some relation or some connection or some understanding that things by themselves aren't facts. It's some connection or some additional information that is, that makes it an atomic fact. So um, an example would be like the grass is green. And so when I say grass, that's, that's an object and, um, or I probably more accurately say uh, grass is a green thing. And so you have grass and when you, you know what grass is, you know, at least I, I think you do, you know what green things are. And when you can say, oh, okay, the, we're, we're, this atomic fact here is basically saying grass is a part of the collection of green things. And you're like, okay, what, what does this have to do with anything? Like, so this is interesting, may not really. What, why would Wittgenstein take the time to talk about atomic facts? Well, what, what's going on, where he's going with this, where we're going to get in a couple minutes is, how do we know what grass is? How do we know that the thing that we think is grass is grass? How do we know these simple objects? What, what are the names? What are the, and, and he's going to start pushing on that, to, to push on our, our language, push on our understanding of things. So when he, he's, he's going through this, he wants us to say these facts that we have in our minds, these facts that we can try to communicate with each other, these facts that make up the world that, you know, everything that is, as he says, 
how do we get these ideas? How do we get these understandings? How, how do we come up with them? For that, for that purpose, um, he's going to, to explain these objects a little more. He says, you know, objects are simple and objects uh, form the substance of the world. When he's talking about this, he's, he's saying we can't come up with objects that don't have some connection to the world. Like we can't talk about a circular square because that, that concept doesn't fit together. We can't talk about the color three because that concept doesn't fit. There's a connection to reality, a connection to, to what's, what is out there that our language is kind of bound by connected with the way we perceive things such that even when we talk about imaginary things or, uh, like unicorns, what is a unicorn? Well, if you take a horse and you put a horn on it and in some cases put wings on it and say it can fly and is magic, but we're, we're taking all of these ideas that are in the world and putting them together. It's not like we're coming up with these imaginary, that the parts themselves are imaginary, but the they can be put together in ways that don't correspond with reality, but the, the objects themselves are part of reality. So our language, you know, he doesn't say it explicitly, but what he's saying is language is bound by our understanding of reality. We can't, you know, we can talk about the color three and sound like we're super sophisticated and, and smart or a circular square. And people might nod with us because they want, you know, they want to act like they understand what's going on. But really we, know, we have no idea what that is, any of that is. That's what Wittgenstein's setting us up for is that we're, when we start talking about language, when we start talking about even facts, we're limited to our perceptions and how we perceive the world, and, and we can't get outside of that to, to be able to communicate anything along those lines. Now, if you've tried to communicate some of your um, intense experiences, your intense perceptions that don't easily fit into, um, into language... Um, you've probably had some frustrating moments and you're like, is Wittgenstein saying those don't count? And he's, no, no, he, he's saying those are atomic facts as well because you can have concepts and the concepts, this is, this is where the object thing comes back. The objects connect with reality. And when you try and explain an experience you had, you use those objects, you use those concepts, but you put them together in ways that are hard to understand that don't necessarily make sense, but because you're trying to express these things, you're still using those objects. You're still using those concepts. It's how you're using it, what you're connecting those objects to in reality or that those concepts to in reality. That's what's, what starts to get tricky. That that's where we, we start to have, um, have some problems, but these atomic facts are not just, language are not just exclusively language, but, but they're connected to our perceptions. And this is where he brings in, and 
this this is a key idea of the Tractatus, but it's not a, the uh, one of the the single singularly numbered propositions. But it's a two point one. This is two point one where he brings in what is called the the picture theory of meaning. And he says, we make to ourselves pictures of facts. We have pictures of things in our minds that we can't express, but we have pictures of them. And the pictures can be really clear. But to try and explain them to another person is incredibly difficult. It doesn't mean that the picture has no meaning or that we're not communicating meaning. What it means is that language is an inadequate way to try to express or communicate the meaning involved. Now, he, 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 he lays this out in Wittgenstein's way in the Tractatus of laying things out as clearly as he does. And, and he says, you know, pictures present the facts in logical space, and the picture is a model of reality. Says elements of the picture stand for objects, you know all all this stuff. It, it's it's a picture in our head that we we form, but then trying to communicate that to another person is where we get where we find a lot of difficulty. I mean, even even something as simple as if I said, think of a dog, and you might think of a golden retriever. Someone else might think of a black Labrador. Some might think of a poodle. Some all these things that we we take these concepts and we we have our own pictures in our head that we're trying to do. Even even if we say something like draw a draw a human with brown hair, someone might draw someone with long hair. Someone might draw someone with short hair or just a little bit of hair, like I'm finding myself to be more and more often. But the the sense is that we have pictures that have meaning to us, but trying to communicate those are incredibly difficult. Again, it doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning. And it also doesn't mean that the picture is reality itself. It's not that our perceptions are what's real. Now, Wittgenstein says the picture is linked with reality, then he says it reaches up to it. Now, now in philosophy, especially when someone uses the language of reaching up or going up, there's a sense in which the what is up is better, is is greater um, than than what's what's lower. And so, even our pictures, even our perceptions, even what's going on in our head is not reality itself, but we're trying to get, it's reaching up to reality. It's trying to get reality. It's trying to do our best to get at what reality is. Now, you might start thinking, wow, this picture stuff has a lot of uh, connections with um with ideas about God. And we'll, we can talk about that later. But it, it just suffice to say, our perceptions are trying to get at reality. The pictures in our head are trying to get at reality, but we can't say our experiences, our perceptions are reality itself. We have to realize that that there's a step between the two that, that we... I'm going to 
cautiously say we cannot uh, with certainty know that we have bridged that connection. Um, so we have pictures and the pictures have meaning and sometimes the pictures are uh, the best way to express the meaning. And, and, but the pictures don't say meaning, pictures show meaning. He's going to talk more about that distinction a bit, but in, in a later proposition, but for Wittgenstein, when he says a picture represents reality and it shows forth is you have to perceive it. And we can use propositions, we can use language. In fact, we often use language to show meaning, which means that language is, is trying to communicate the picture to someone else so that someone else can have the same perception that you do and that their perception can, can connect with reality. Um, this, this picture theory is, some people say Wittgenstein rejected it. And I think he, he rejected it in the sense that he modified it because it was a little incomplete, but, but for the purposes of the Tractatus, it, it gets at what we need to get at. The idea is that when we use language, we're not always using language to communicate something directly. Sometimes we're trying to create the picture in someone else's mind to communicate meaning. So language has multiple purposes and does multiple things, but we use the same words to do both, which is problematic. But Wittgenstein talks about that in a future proposition. I don't want to get bogged down there. For now, um, a couple more things about this picture about pictures in our heads. Uh, the, the picture cannot place itself outside its form of representation. What and In other words, we can't say that the picture is uh, definitive, that it's the picture of reality. Rather, it's a picture in our head of reality. So we were, we're that step removed. We're, we're, we're stuck in, in our perceptions. We're stuck in in language, in a sense, this is a kind of language. It's not the syntactic language of uh, English or um, logic that we'll talk about in future episodes. But picture meaning is huge, and it does a lot more work than I think we often realize. I mean, if you stop and think about how much of the language you use is actually about trying to communicate a picture you have in your mind, um, you realize why it can be so difficult to communicate, um, why so much, why it is so easy to um, miscommunicate when you think you're being clear. So our pictures can agree with reality, they cannot agree with reality, but our pictures are, are, are attempting to connect with reality. Um, and then at the end of his discussion of Proposition 2, he says that there is no picture which is a priori true. What that means is every picture, the truth of every picture depends on experience. There isn't a picture that, that we have that just gives a truth that is independent of experience. So in a sense, you might be thinking, okay, so 
pictures are kind of experiential meaning language that he's going to talk about saying is a priori and yes but he's going to say language can say more than that but this picture meaning i i i can't emphasize it enough because we i think it pushes back on on at least if you've done much philosophy you know it's all about being clear with your language and being precise with your concepts and all that but the precision is based on how does it match up with the picture you have and how well are you communicating the picture that you have and how how do we know the other person is picking up on the picture that we have or are we both agreeing on something when we have two very different pictures Wittgenstein's not so much concerned about that in the Tractatus. He's much more concerned about the invest that in the investigations. But what he's showing here is the inadequacy of language for getting at the world um, as we know it. So that those are the first two propositions. Remember, he's he's ultimately going to say basically everything needs to stay in its lane. If if you can't say say it, then don't try because it's it's you're not going to say anything meaningful. You're not going to say anything useful. In fact, you're only going to muddy the waters and make things more difficult. So be be know when to be quiet. I mean, in in a sense, he's he's getting at uh, the words of James one with everyone should be quick to listen, uh, slow to slow to speak and slow to become angry. Um, yeah, it was that point where I really want to interrupt you here on this. Yeah, no, that's sort of a joke. But ah. I, so I, I do have a question about really, I I want to repeat what you said about the picture theory. Uh, and I'll see if I'm understanding Wittgenstein. Maybe this will help other people because, and if you're listening and you're like, what the blast does this have to do with anything? I think Joel has explained it, uh, but you may still not be quite getting it. But trust me, it's going somewhere really, really interesting. Uh, even though I think it's already hit, you've already hinted at it really well in this picture form. Uh, and you, you've applied, I mean, if you need a concrete application, what Wittgenstein is kind of doing is talking about why it's so hard. It's so hard to communicate. And really most of our arguments, most of the battles that we have over, over ideas and so on and so forth, it could just be arising from this because he says what, what you can't, what cannot be stated is the form of the picture. And so, and he's going to say later, this is skipping ahead to Proposition 6, that, that like that, the happy man and the, the sad man, sad person, they actually inhabit different worlds. So the pictures that they present, they may be stating the same facts. And so they think they're talking about the same thing. Tell me if I'm getting this right. I'm, I'm actually, this is kind of in the form of a question. There's no question mark, but I'm asking <laughs> you to, to ch- check me on this. But they could be talking about the exact same things and have completely different pictures of them because the form of the picture is distinct. And it's that form that's so hard to communicate in, in clear propositions. And yet the form is the very nature of what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. They could they could be using the same words, but have two different pictures, but both picture be reaching up to the same part of reality. But because the pictures are so different different it's as though they're living in different worlds because what is the picture of one person's world is so different from the picture of another person's world even though they're using the same words and reaching to the same part of reality with the picture the, the difference of pictures can create different worlds such that they they would 
you know, if we were able to somehow get into the experience of another person, we would see that picture and be like, I have no idea what, how that connects to the words that you're, you're saying or, (laughs) you know, or something to that extent. Yeah. Um, And this is, this is sometimes like, uh, I mean, this is the experience of studying philosophy. This has been my experience over and over again with just learning philosophy itself is I'm, I'm reading, I'm reading. I'm like, I don't know. What is this guy talking about? And, you know, and it's sort of like a Zen Buddhist sort of thing where I suddenly just something snaps and I'm like, oh, in fact, the first time I ever took a philosophy class, I took an epistemology class. And I remember sitting there going, what are we even talking about? And maybe you've had this experience if you're listening to this this podcast. What is going like, I don't understand what you're talking about. I don't know why. I don't even understand why this matters. Like, what what does it matter? But a lot of what makes something matter is the form of the picture. And so it's the shape of things. It's how they're in connection with one another, how they relate to one another. And if I take the if I take facts that are completely independent of one another in them because in themselves they are independent of one another. I'm trying to repeat some of what Wittgenstein said here. Then they can just float about and people put them put them together in different sorts of ways. And it's how they relate that what we're often trying to communicate. I can say, you know, if I said something like, man, I was in an accident yesterday and you can understand that, you know, you can understand what the point I'm trying to make, you know, 25 different ways. And this is a little bit, this isn't really what Wittgenstein is getting at, but until I explain what matters to me about that, you can inter- you'll interpret it in lots of, lots of different sorts of ways, but he's talking much bigger here. And in many ways, what Wittgenstein seems to be saying is if philosophy is about precise language, the relationship between propositions and analysis of the world, that the, the objects that make up the world, I should say, then philosophy is extremely limited in its scope. I mean, it still touches everything in a way, except the shape of things. Is that yeah, it, sort of right? In, in, in a sense, philosophy, if we're going to, um, you know, focus on uh, precise language, clarity of concepts, you know, those kinds of things, where we we lock ourselves into a form of communication, a form of meaning that is limited in 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 how far it can reach, in in where it can go, and um, well, there's something to be said for that. I, we're going to see that Wittgenstein thinks that there's, it's, uh, well, it can say some things about some important things. Some of the most important things are not going to fit into that, into those, uh, into that form where if, if that's what philosophy is, philosophy would be best off to not even try to talk about those things. Yeah. Um, and so, so, and, and the issue is like one of the goals, arguably one of the goals of philosophy, I like to present some of the philosophers this way. You, you know, if you look at someone like Descartes, he's trying to find that, that indubitable ground, that, that thing on which all of our knowledge can be built that no one can doubt. And if he can accomplish this, it's peace on earth. If we can find one, one bit that no human being could doubt and then built a view, build a view of the world off of that one piece of unmoving solid ground that everyone agrees with, we could bring all the debates settle, everyone calms down, and we can just get to work making the world a better place. It didn't work, right? And no. 
And what Wittgenstein is saying is, yeah, you're not doing it right. That's not how it works. Well, it it, it works sort on certain <laughs> on certain things, but okay, it, it doesn't work on everything. Um, we'll we'll get more into that uh, in a couple episodes. Um, you know, there, there's, you know, I'll, I'll put some cards on the table when when you get to propositions five and the first half of proposition six, it feels like he's doing a lot of uh, throat clearing. You could say he's, he gives a lot of definitions, gets really hung up on logic. There's some real good nuggets in there that it's like, Oh, there he he's, it's almost like he's, he's uh, doing to his readers, what he did to the Vienna circle when he would read poetry to them to remind them that no, there's meaning, there's more meaning than what you think. Um, he's, it's almost like, he's giving us these hints as he's going through and laying out what can be said that there's more going on and there's some really important stuff going on. And this is really limited. Um, but if, if you don't know where he's going, you read those and you're like, these seem like throwaway sentences, but given how much time he spent refining everything and how precise everything is, if there's a proposition in there, it's for a reason. Wittgenstein saw a purpose in it that, um, I mean, there, there are, there are some that we'll talk about in a couple episodes where, you know, we'll get to the 0.1361 kind of thing. And it's, you know, so he's, it's, it's the, the proposition and then the support and then the support and then the support and then another support, fourth support. And that's where he's saying something really interesting and really significant that you would miss if you didn't realize what was going on. I mean, so he kind of buries some important things. I think he's kind of just trying to give nudges every now and then that says, hey, hey, there's more. There's more going on. We we can't be focused on just this, this conception of language because it's not going to do everything we want it to do for us. All right, this is this is getting more exciting for me uh, uh, as as Joel explains more. So, but I think we're gonna we're gonna stop for today. Uh, nice short episode for you. And next episode, I believe we're getting into propositions three and four. Yep. Yep. And so, uh, if you would like, you know, uh, you can follow along. Just find a a version online and look at. Uh, maybe look at the major propositions. Maybe we'll read those off at the beginning of next next episode. Just read propositions one through seven. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, again, we don't necessarily recommend you read the book unless you have you have a high uh, tolerance for pain. But uh, well, anyway, I, I I'll say you know picking this picking the Tractatus back up t- after a few years to uh, read it to to get ready for this. Um, it took me a little bit to get back into, to the right mindset. Cause you, you have to have a certain mindset when you read this. Otherwise you're just going to get lost in the weeds and it's really easy to get lost in the weeds. And it's really easy to um, miss what's being said. And I, I think the key is knowing where he's going going and remember that the he sees the propositions as being the foundation and so you you got to keep going back to it you, um and if you if you 
miss that overarching thing how you're you're gonna you're just gonna be like wow this is kind of boring and kind of pointless and i don't know why i'm reading this um like i i like i also said you know the last time it was at the end of the second time of reading the tractatus that it clicked and i i had read it you know twice in in less than two weeks and then i was like wow there's something huge i gotta go back and read it a third time and then the third time was when everything just like opened up and it was and i realized just how outstanding of a work this this is and so i'm trying i'm doing my best to communicate the observations i gained on my third and subsequent times reading this to people who have not even read it a first time and so it's a it's tricky but i hope we're 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 communicating some of this uh the importance some of the the brilliance of this and um again the difficulty in doing so is almost the point of the book so <laughs> sounds good well uh, until next time i'm travis i'm joel have a great day thanks for listening <laughs>